welcome back to What's New with Mead. Today, we are on episode number 18, and this episode is all about what I've learned in Mead school, so to speak. Um, what I mean by that is my experiences within mead making and kind of what I've learned and what I would hopefully tell you guys about. I haven't been to a quote official mead school, um, if that even exists, but I do think my uh, experiences are valid enough to uh, talk about. So, this morning, because it's Saturday morning, I am trying to take it uh, super easy, so I have myself a glass of whiskey. I'm just kidding. This is not whiskey. This is a little finger of basically buckwheat honey, and um, then, buckwheat honey, buckwheat traditional, I should say, that I just made. It's like 10%, super low. Uh, I mean, it's it's easy drinker. And then the other easy drinker, because it is Saturday morning, this is an apple mead. Um, this is a apple, basically, sizer, if you don't know much about that. So, um, I'm making that. Seems like my cat's going to join me. If you are uh, listening to the podcast online, then you um, are... You know, not getting to see the video. If you want to see the video, go check it out on the Man Made Mead Extras channel. So, I've got a friend back here on this side. He's going to be, I guess he's going to be participating in this one. So, alright, let's get started. Let me tell you about some of my different meads I've made. And, um, I think it's, well, I am not going to ever say that I'm the master mead making person and I, I don't think that's true at all of anybody um, I do think that I've, I've got some experiences to share so a couple of things I've learned thing number one there's a huge difference between fermenting in your primary versus your secondary fermentation now that seems very um, clear but the truth is uh, I didn't realize that at the beginning and so I was throwing ingredients into the primary in some cases sometimes into the secondary and then getting different results and kind of like not understanding what was happening. In the primary, there's so much more fermentation that occurs, so much more activity in general that you have to factor in that you are probably going to lose a little bit of your flavor. You're going to lose a little bit of your uh, aroma from honey or maybe if you've put your apples or your blueberries or whatever, you're going to lose some of that to the offshooting of aromas during the primary. In the secondary, you can still lose those aromatic flavors and those things. Um, it's just less vigorous. So when I learned that putting the fruit or the spices, especially spices, into the secondary works a little better, I think my mead making game got upped really quickly. And that's just because you can do so much more with flavor profiles if you know how to control them. For example, let's take this man-made sizer. So this thing, I have made many an apple mead in my time. And um, when I first started making it, I would always throw all the apples into the primary. And I would end up with a mead that tasted a little bit like apples. And I was, I was, I didn't know any better. I was like, okay, this is right, this is normal. But I remember hearing somewhere in the world that if you put them in the secondary, that you will retain more flavors. Uh, I, I heard about that, I should say. And so I tried that. I put the apples into the secondary one time, and I noticed that the apple flavor um, lasted longer. It stayed in within the mead. And then I experimented even more with it, and I realized that 
you can add even more flavor, especially in this case of this recipe, with or by stabilizing your mead before you actually put the apples in. And what happens then is you are um, taking the sugars from the apples and you are putting it into the mead and they're not being fermented on. Therefore, you're keeping more of that flavor and uh, I think that's that's kind of important. So, um, I, I definitely learned that lesson late and I'll kind of dive further into into that. But this apple meat is a perfect example of that. So much, I did so much in the primary and then I did some in the secondary and now I do only apples in the secondary. Some of you are like, no, put your apples in the primary, which is fine, but I don't do it. That's just my opinion. And this thing turns out fantastic every time. Um, so when I learned that, that difference. Now, can you put stuff in the primary and still get a good mead? Absolutely. Uh, things like, let's say grape juice. If you're going to ferment with grape juice or juice in general, um, you want to generally start with some. And then most of the time in the secondary, you're going to come back and add some more juice or some more flavor. So that's something to... Um, Keep in mind that juices are important. It's just like wine. You start with a wine base, you start with a juice base, like that. Uh, other things like, can you throw your spices into the primary? Of course, you can put as whatever you want into the primary. My issue with putting spices into the primary fermentation is that the fermentation generally takes longer than the spices need to be in a mead. Um, at least in my case, every single time I've put a cinnamon stick in or nutmeg or clove or whatever, um, I haven't really needed that much time. And so two weeks with like a whole clove would be too much. So what I've kind of drawn back to is putting all of my spices into the secondary, which then allows me to um, taste test it in the secondary until I get to the point where I like where the meat is at as far as spices are concerned. So that, that's kind of my thing with spices. You can put them in the primary and it's helpful. So secondary fermentation is also um, a great place to put like every other flavor. I talked about the apples, you know, if you stabilize your mead, you put the apples in, retain sugars. Same thing for anything else, any other fruit, any other juice, any other thing. If you don't stabilize, you are going to have re-fermentation, which is not a bad thing, but if you don't want re-fermentation, then you want to stabilize your mead in some form or fashion. You can, of course, stabilize with a couple different methods. Um, I'll, I'll go ahead and talk about that here in a second, but uh, that stabilizing does help create and foster more flavor within your mead, so I think that's helpful. Um, I think that's kind of all I have to say about primary versus secondary. The big thing there is just experiment. While my experiences might say that such fruit is better in the primary or secondary, then great, but more than likely you're gonna have, you might have a different experience and that's okay. So uh, let's talk about now the stabilizing side. I did not realize you could stabilize meads earlier. I wish I had learned this because it's a very valuable skill for mead making, wine making in general. You're, you're able to hold more flavors in your mead over time because you're not 
having to add so much fruit. And that's another side of this is if you stabilize, you don't have to add so much flavor to try and re-bolster what you have. Um, but if you are not stabilizing, then you're just causing more re-fermentation, which then takes away flavor, which then you add more flavor. So you see what I'm saying? If you, in the case of, let's say this apple mead, if I just kept adding apples on top, it's gonna re-ferment and re-ferment and re-ferment until the yeast hit their cap. Um, so I like stabilizing. You can stabilize by pasteurizing by using potassium sorbate, metabisulfite. You can use um, cold crashing for a momentary um, sort of, you know, stabilizing method. But that one's not great for long term. So don't rely on cold crashing to save you in the long run. Um, yeah, again, go experience it. See if you like stabilizing. Some people don't like using potassium sorbate or metabisulfite. Some people don't like stabilizing at all. They just wanna leave their mead as it is and make it work, which is, is fine, but you kind of have to play the game in order to get a sweeter mead. So that's one huge thing I learned is stabilizing. Stabilizing is super helpful and really, um, it's something I do a lot in my mead making. And uh, maybe you do too, who knows? And that's, that's kind of nice. Let's switch gears a little bit and talk a little bit about equipment. Some things I learned about equipment, um, buckets versus glass fermenting. Um, buckets are awesome for fermenting if you're adding lots of fruits and lots of things that take up space because you can hold more stuff in a bucket generally than a carboy. You can also get things out of a bucket way easier than a carboy. I started most all of my fermentations in buckets and then I might have aged one or two meads within a bucket for a while and that wasn't wasn't great. But um, I, I didn't know. I didn't know any better at the time. Of course we know now, most people know, uh, glass aging is way better than plastic aging because you run less of a risk of um, bad like BPA plasticky flavors getting inside of your mead. The other side of equipment that I realized, things like hydrometers. Um, I got a hydrometer after like 10 meads, so I, I waited a while. I wish I had gotten a hydrometer from day one because it would have made my life so much easier, so much better, and I think you should get one too. Um, there are a couple other things. I don't have it next to me, but if you are trying to get samples of mead and you have like a turkey baster, of sorts, this is a very large version of it, but this is a, um, what is this thing called? It's basically a giant turkey baster. So stuff like this is great for like getting a sample of your mead, so you don't have to um, pour a three gallon carboy out or one gallon and stir up your your uh, mixture, which you know generally we don't, we don't like. It also keeps you from getting uh, oxygen within the mead. So that's helpful. Thermometers, um, I have a couple different size, uh, a couple different size like graduated cylinders for floating hydrometers in, which is helpful if you're doing multiple gravity readings at once, which you probably aren't, but I do sometimes um, because I do a lot of mead science. Uh, so this is helpful. Then uh, the spray bottle, sorry, I'm, I'm looking at my, um, my wall of things. So the spray bottle here, this is distilled water. Distilled? I think that's right. Not distilled. Whatever it is. Not normal purified water. 
Um, and then star sand mixture. The star sand in, mix in this mixture lasts for about a month, so I can spray down all my stuff. This is not a great solution for sanitizing if you are um, if you are needing to soak things. This is just good for a quick spritz of a spoon or a fork or whatever you're doing. And of course, I'm not going into sanitizing now, but sanitizing is also very important. You don't want to ruin a brew, which happens a lot to people, surprisingly. Um, the, last, the last few equipment things I want to mention. The I got a floor corker. After a long time of using a hand corker, I'll just ro rotate this this way. So up there you see this is a, a hand corker that you have to like Y bend in order to, um, you know, place your corks in the mead. It doesn't work super well for me. It's also slower. So I bought a, a big Italian floor corker. It's like this tall. It takes up a lot of space, but it, it works really efficiently. And then the other one is a bottle capper. You can use just the hand capper, or if you do a lot of capping, there's a bench capper, which is for, again, lots of capping. Um, I, and I use those things all the time. Uh, synthetic corks are great. I don't use regular corks, I use synthetic because I have to store all my wine bottles pointing up, so I don't have room to store them on their side. Um, if I had room to do that, then I would gladly be doing that, but I don't. And that's it. Thermometers, things just to um, stir up your mead, all that. Equipment does matter, and it actually makes a big difference. While you're like, do I really need to spend 12 bucks on a uh, mixing paddle to, to mix stuff up or a drill attachment, that stuff. For me, as somebody who makes a lot of mead, I have benefited greatly from having them. You might just be okay with, you know, plastic spoon, wooden spoon, shaking up, all those things. Equipment does matter. Can you brew with minimal equipment? Of course. Uh, I just don't choose to, to do that, frankly. I choose to use what I have, especially because if you see behind me, I have a lot of things happening. So that's, that's, just where I'm at with that. So, sorry, ooh, this buckwheat traditional. It's a, well, let's, I'll just dive into this world now. Um, I was about to talk about honey. I did not realize early on that things like pasteurized honey, unfiltered honey, or filtered honey, I should say, uh, or just in general honey types really mattered. I did buy some, thankfully enough, quality honey from the beginning. I had heard that you don't want those things, but I didn't know the difference. I didn't know the difference between going to Walmart and buying the honey bear that is not real honey at all. I mean, it's like maybe 50% honey, 50% corn syrup or whatever. And actually going to your local apiary and picking yourself up three pounds of whatever wildflower honey they have. The quality of honey you buy will dictate the quality of mead you make. Um, so I, I think a lot of people think about it in the terms of like, uh, you know, if you put if you put crap into something, you get crap out of it. it bad ingredients equals bad mead. Can you make a bad ingredient taste good? Yeah, but you kind of have to work really hard. So if I had realized early on that the honey I was buying or needed to buy um, needed to be unpasteurized, unfiltered, um, of a reliable source, you know, it shouldn't just be some random honey sauce, like KFC style or something, 
then I think um, I would have learned I would have had more successful meads more quickly. At this point, I do try to buy bulk, so I have to find a different, a couple different sources for buying bulk, and most of the time, bulk honey, if you find like 60 pounds of clover honey for 80 bucks, you should probably stay away from it. It seems like a great deal, but it's not a good deal in the long run. Um, so you, you do need to spend some money on your honey. Uh, you're probably going to spend three to five dollars per pound on quality honey, and that's a lot. But again, high quality mead means you have to give it high quality ingredients. So uh, just make sure you're investing well, and this is an investment. At the end of the day, if you're bottling like me, you're probably putting bottles back that you're going to drink two years from now. While you're going, man, I spent, let's say, I don't know, 25 bucks on this gallon of mead. That's, that's okay, because if you drink a bottle of it, let's say two years from now, a bottle of mead, a let's say 375 uh, milliliter bottle of mead, is worth generally about 12 to 20 bucks at least. So you are getting your money's worth, especially if it's aged. If you don't, buy great ingredients, you're not going to get a great result. Age does fix a lot of problems, but it can't always fix a bad honey. So I have a couple different sources for honey that I use. Um, I've experimented with a bunch over time because obviously I do this a lot. One of them I like is um, Dutch Gold Honey. They do, of course, smaller amounts of honey and bulk honey. So I've bought from them. They've had some high quality stuff. Um, there's a place called glorybee.com and it is a honey store um, that does bulk honey, does smaller amounts. You can get some niche products like I've got some coffee blossom honey, I've got some meadow foam from them, um, some blackberry um, honey, uh, a couple different things like that that are just really nice high quality honeys. I have also purchased honey through Webstaurant before, which is a, a restaurant servicing place, so they you know ship out a lot of restaurant equipment and foods and stuff like that. And I, I have not been pleased over time with it. Um, it held up in the first two months, the honey quality did, but then, now looking at it six months later, I'm not that pleased with it. It's got some glaring problems. And uh, so I, I don't really like using it, and I prefer not to. Can you get it other places, local apiaries, um, other online sources? Absolutely. I just don't know of all of those. There could be a place close to you. You have to, again, go search for yourself to uh, find that out. So that's a big thing, too. Do some mead research before you start. Um, honey matters, all that. Now going into the other side, I just said mead research. Mead research is, is also important, as, as important as it is to just go out and make your own meads. If you want to be inspired to learn from other people's uh, successes or mistakes maybe, go look up YouTube channels, go look up mead forums on Reddit, on Facebook, on Discord. I think Discord has some stuff. Um, you can find lots of different communities of people who make mead on a regular basis and who can tell you if your idea is good or if you're going to run into issues. I have made a lot of meads, like I said, 120 plus now, but I haven't made them all. You know, there are lots of mead recipes I see online and people go, 
um, people ask me like, hey, have you made a, I don't know, what's pine cone traditional, whatever. No, I haven't made a pine cone traditional. So maybe someone else has. The thing is those resources, those groups are in like so valuable to our community. As great as uh, us mead making YouTubers, um, the content we might push out is nice and things. You can also be a good source of help for people around you um, by sharing your experiences or by asking questions. And asking questions is great. Feel free to ask questions here on any forum because there are there are dumb mead making questions. For example, if you get on a forum and you say, "Is mead a honey based product?" That's kind of a. I mean. Maybe if you're a brand new person, that's a good question. But if you're any seasoned mean maker at all, that's a that's a dumb question. Most other questions are not dumb. Hey, is this yeast good? Is the Lavin 71B a good yeast for a, a sizer? Okay, well, go ask that. And then you'll find out from other people if they've experienced that. And you might not always have experienced people on those forums, but most often you do. In fact, I run one of them. It's on Facebook if you want to join. It's called the Man Made Mead Makers. And it, we are like, uh, we got like 1,700 people in there. And it's just a community where we talk about mead making. And some people, you know, we all share our experiences and uh, ask each other questions. It's, it's a great place. There's a bunch of other ones on Facebook, there's a bunch of other ones on. Uh, Reddit, there's their r slash mead, which I've been through on this podcast before. That's pretty cool and pretty good in general. But find a resource like that and ask questions. Don't be afraid to ask questions. Um, you're probably not going to ask a dumb question. And if you do, that's okay. Most people, like when I, if I get a question, is honey, is mead a honey based product? While I, I go, hmm, that was a silly question to me. I still am going to answer it. I'm still going to help you out. That's, just because it was a silly question doesn't mean I'm not going to help. Um, you know, my, my day job is being a teacher, so uh, I deal with far dumber questions from kids than, um, you know, uh, is mead a honey-based product? But that's just my own experience with this. So learning from other people is super important in my time. Now, going backwards even more in, my, in time, when I first started mead making, I didn't do a great job of writing down every bit of information about my mead. You need to have a notebook, have a spreadsheet, have a, some sort of document in your life that tells you what you've done to your meads from start to finish. For example, let's say you have made uh, traditional, you used three pounds of honey, whatever kind of honey, water, and a Lavin 71B packet. You need to, of course, have that information down, what your ingredients are, the dates at which you started it. So let's say I started it on, you know, 9-12-2017, okay? Well, I need to make sure that I write down the time I start it, the date that I rack it over into a new container, the date I um, bottle it, or, you know, those things, because... You can. You need to have that for the future to be able to recreate the mead. You need to know that I left this in the primary for two weeks, and then I left it. Or I let it age in the carboy for you know eight weeks, and then I bottled it. 
as a general consensus of what to do better each time. Um, that's just super important. I didn't write down all my stuff. Also, that goes for things like stabilizing, back sweetening, adding other ingredients. Make sure you write down, I added three pounds of apples. I added a, a you know teaspoon of nutmeg into this mead. Whatever you've done, because again, if you want to recreate it in the future, you need to have that information on hand to say, this is what I did to the mead. And um, that seems simple, but we often forget that. I'm notorious for starting meads and saying, okay, I'm gonna go write down the information right now. And then five minutes later, I forget. So it's just a good practice to get used to writing down your information as soon as you can. That just makes life easier for all of us, for you especially. And again, I wish I'd learned that earlier on. But yeah, so I have just a few more things, but I wanna, I wanna say this. This is a lot of basic stuff, and you might be listening to the podcast and say, I'm a seasoned mead maker. I don't need to know this stuff. You're right, and it's good. I, I mean, I'm glad that you were seasoned. It's still good to be reminded of what we should be doing. Over time, you might have started your mead making uh, world with good habits, and then we start to get lazy. <laughs> we drop the good habits, and then you go, you know, you might be listening to this and go, oh, yeah, I'm... I'm really bad about writing down my um, information about my meads. I need to do that. While that's a basic concept, it's still good to have it on hand to help you out, help us out, I should say. And again, I'm not trying to say I'm all right about everything, but even seasoned mead makers can learn something from one another. I think especially from one another. So that takes me right to my next topic, which is... Making mistakes within mead making is probably, mm, this is a bold statement, but the best thing you can do. So whenever you're making a mead, if you make mistakes, it is not the end of the world, number one. In fact, I think most people are encouraged after they make a mistake because they realize I've got that out of the way, now I can move on and figure out not to do that again. If you only ever make good meads, you, one, you're not learning what a, a bad mead tastes like. You're not developing your palate to say, this is what, ooh, what, this is what a skunky taste is like. This is what a visal tastes like. This is what a over-ripened peach tastes like in a mead. You only have this good product. And it's just not real. You know, I think that we all tend to make good meads and bad meads over time. But making mistakes is just a part of mead making in life in general. When you make mistakes, you learn from those things and you grow, you get better. You learn not to make the same mistake. And sometimes you make the same mistake over time, but you also, you, you know, you get the experience under your belt. So I think it's important that we cherish the mistakes we make, which is why I like embrace this mead community mistakes um, video I've put on my channel. I've done two of them now because we can learn from one another. We have to learn to, you know, not put too much honey in the secondary and then bottle it because that turns into a bottle bomb. You have to learn to sanitize, you know, your corks, sanitize this, or this is what happens when you um, use this specific type of honey. Like, we're just getting valuable information from one another 
through seeing other other people's mistakes. And so I think that's definitely important and helpful for us to realize. Now, um, should you seek out mistakes? I don't think so. I'm not saying you should seek out mistakes and try to make them as much as you can. What I'm saying is that when they happen, and they will, write it down. Say what happened. Write it down in your sheet that I was talking about. Oh, I put eight ounces of honey into the secondary and then I bottled it too soon. And so now I have bottle bombs. So you write down in your notes and say, bottle bombs, because I put too much honey in. <laughs> don't do that again. Um, you know, stuff like that. Just make sure you're not, you are not putting those experiences behind you and saying, I'll never make it again. Um, let's forget about it. I think it's just important for us. So I'm all about embracing mistakes and hopefully through the YouTube channel, YouTube channel, you guys are seeing that, um, my mistakes are more often than not honest. Like when I make them, I'm not trying to hide them because the truth is I think mistakes again are important and are helpful to us. But, uh, it's, it's also just a, a thing where you, you have to do it yourself. That also goes into my last topic for today and for this podcast, which is when you are mean making, you have to experience things for yourself. Listening to me or any other YouTuber or any other person on Reddit, on Facebook, talk about what their apple mead tastes like. It's fantastic. You get to learn terminology. Ooh, this tastes, the body of this tastes a certain way, the yada, 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 whatever. You get to learn those things, but you're not experiencing it for yourself. At the end of the day, you tasting what an apple mead tastes like will be more valuable than watching a mead review. Now, it's not bad. You know, as somebody who posts mead reviews, I hope you guys will watch them. But I do want you guys to take my mead review and go out and buy that mead or go try to make your own peach mead. Go try to make your own whatever because that is where we'll actually see what has happened with the mead itself. That seems self-explanatory, but we often lean on other people's understandings and other people's video content to be the end-all be-all of our understanding, but it's not. In truth, you have to experience it for yourself. So I just, I don't want us to get caught up in the world where we think that uh, other other people's experiences are our experiences. It's not true. Your experiences are yours. The good mead that you made is your experience. In truth, there are a lot of people listening and a lot of mead makers out in the, in the world right now who can make better meads than myself, than all of the other mead making YouTubers, all the other mead making people in the world. And that's just because they have their own palate. You have to develop your own palate over time and it takes time. It takes experience, tasting things, understanding what sour things taste like, what's sweet, what kind of you know, honey you use, what does buckwheat honey taste like, what does alpha alpha blossom honey taste like, Ooh, what is mesquite. All of that stuff is just experience. So again, that's very tangential, but I think it's important that we just pave our own path in this world, whether it's mead making or in your own other things you do. It doesn't have to just be mean making. Um, we are definitely, are, are, we need to make our own choices. So that's basically it. This was a um, 
you know, some people are not going to say very enlightening podcast and that's okay. And uh, I hope that if you've heard something today and you are reminded of why you started mead making, what you need to do to be different in your mead making career, whatever I've said, um, has helped you in some way because I love getting to make content for you guys. This is truly a joy for me. Uh, I There's a reason I've been doing it for three years now where I've posted uh, over, I think, 300 YouTube videos. I enjoy getting to do this because it is a, it's a fun experience and you guys make it fun by continuing to support me, continuing to ask questions, to challenge me, to um, just, you know, be a part of the community. So thank you for your time. I hope you guys will tune in for future podcast episodes. Um, this one's a little bit late because the last one I did was almost a month ago. So I, I skipped a week or two weeks basically because I got really busy because school has started and life just gets busy in general. So I'll try and be better about... Um, you know, recording them as I can. If you want to hear something specific about the podcast, whether it be a specific topic, carbonation or whatever, or you just want to you give questions, feel free to ask questions down below because I will gladly answer them. And then you can also just email me. If you have questions about that, go to email me at um, manmademeadery.com or at gmail.com, sorry, manmademeadery at gmail.com. And uh, that is where you can get a hold of me if you have specific topics or questions that you want addressed. But I will continue to do these. I will continue to make mead content. Go check out the YouTube channel. There's um, the main channel, which is Man Made Mead. And then there's the second channel, which is Man Made Mead Extras, where I post these videos, the um, podcast videos, and I post, of course, the... Um, the mead reviews that I do. So, again, thanks for watching. I hope you have a great day. Um, if you might have enjoyed all the the video from my cat, he's just been going going to town here, having fun. So, um, he's been a little fun, not fun thing for me, but he's uh, somehow picked up fleas. So I've been fighting fleas in my house for a while. Um, so that's probably why he's losing his mind right now, trying to. I think we're recovering from fleas now. I've tried to get them all off of him. Anyways, annoying, to say the least. Have a great day. Um, I'll see you next time. Cheers.